It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I am your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That, of course, is 106.5 in Toronto and 95.7 in Ottawa. It's also anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. It is a pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. Faye Mishna, and she is a professor of social work at the University of Toronto. And prior to joining the Faculty of Social Work, she was the clinical director of a children's mental health center serving children with learning disabilities. Her research has focused on bullying from the perspectives of the victimized children, their parents and educators, and more recently on cyberbullying. So it's a pleasure to welcome uh, Dr. Fay to the show. Welcome. Thank you. And we're here to talk to with Dr. Fay about uh, cyberbullying, as we just introduced, and uh, what uh, what can parents do about it? Uh, Dr. Fay, you know, I'd like to ask you start starting with you know bullying. How prevalent is bullying these days? We do hear about it a lot, of course. Well, bullying. I would say bullying is quite prevalent, and the research still tends to show to indicate that physical or non-cyberbullying is more prevalent. But I'm not sure if that is actually accurate. There's there's real range because uh, the different studies use different participants, different timeframes, different definitions. But um, but generally, I would say it's quite prevalent. Now, you just identified two uh, versions there, physical and cyberbullying. How do the, those two differ in terms of the impact on children? You know, I mean, obviously physical is physical, but I'm just wondering how that affects both of them, you know. Okay, and so actually, rather than just physical, I would say there's traditional bullying and cyberbullying. Okay. So tra- traditional bullying includes physical aggression, verbal aggression. It includes um, relational kind of aggression, which really means, you know, excluding people, gossip, stuff like that. Cyberbullying um, is is really a, the same intent, but it's done through uh, electronic means. Mm. The, the definition of bullying is really that it's an intentional, it, the intent is to hurt, and it's a use of power with the intent to hurt. Um, and the power comes from different, you know, so for example, if you're on the schoolyard, it might be there's five kids against one kid. Mm-hmm. Or somebody doesn't do well in school, or how they look, or race, um, whether they're LGBTQ, whether they're, they're gender. Um, and so those would really be the difference. In terms of the effect, uh, I, the other thing that's important to remember about bullying is I think there's a general agreement now that bullying, you can't just think about the child who's bullied or the child who bullies, then you have to look at the whole system. So they're in the friendship, peers, school, society. Um, and so when you think about it as it's really considered a relationship problem. So when you think about it that way, the effects of all of them can be quite damaging. Um, and it really depends on the circumstances. So physical bullying, sometimes there's this myth um, in our in a recent study that we did, we found people would say, well, physical isn't as bad because you know, you heal from your injuries, whereas the cyber or the um, verbal stays with you. 
But when you think about physical being part of a relationship, so it's very different than falling down the stairs or something or hurting yourself physically accidentally. If somebody's done it to you as part of the relationship, they both can have serious effects. Mm. And then cyber can be a bit different because with cyber, uh, typically when you think about bullying, you think about it being repetitive. With cyber, repetition is a bit complicated because um, one person might send out something, and then it can be—we know—it can be, it can be forwarded, forwarded um, indefinitely. So um, that, so the idea that, and also because it's online, it doesn't get removed, so it can have an effect because of that. Hmm. So it doesn't ever really become a memory, right? Now, I noticed that this uh, article that you wrote about uh, risk factors for involvement in cyberbullying, victims, bullies, and bully victims. So you, you've, you've broken that down into three different areas. Um, so in tra- actually, generally in traditional bullying, there's really there's victims, uh, kids who bully, and then victim bullies. And what research has found with that is that the kids who are both victim bully others and are bullied have the most problems because those that's a small group. In cyberbullying, because of the nature of cyberbullying, it's easier to engage in it. Um, you know, because there's the impersonality. It's like right now I'm looking at a screen, right? So, so if I do something, let's say if I just said something terrible about you or to you, I don't see your face. So, um, I mean, I could, you know, but, let, but let's say we were on Zoom and I couldn't see your face, mm. then you can't get the cues. So, um, so in cyberbullying, there's less of a difference. Kids are more likely to go back and forth and be to do both. And I imagine, I wonder, has it changed the characteristics of bullying in terms of you know you mentioned like on the on the playground, uh, usually it's it's a bigger kid picking on a smaller kid, but like you just said, online uh, size doesn't really matter if you're a large you know big kid or a small kid. You, you know, bullying just uh, impersonal to some degree. Well, it's, it's still personal because it's still part of the relationship. It just mm. might be a different kind of, a different characteristic gives you the power. So online, it might be that you um, are more savvy online, so you're able to do it mm. better. Mm. Um, so it just, it's, still, uh, it's still part of the relationship. And actually, it's interesting because when we first started doing, when, when in the world, when research was first being conducted on cyberbullying, there was this kind of idea that it was anonymous, but really it's not. And the research shows it's similar to traditional bullying. It happens with witnesses, with bystanders. Mm. And um, research really does show, too, with traditional bullying, um, and I think probably also with cyber, although it hasn't been done as much, that if kids who are bystanders step in, it helps it stop. Well, along that same line, has it changed at all in terms of the bullying, uh, cyberbullying because of, like we were just saying, on the playground, if you get five or six kids ganging up on one, that is one kind of, of, of bullying. But does, I mean, that, that can also happen online, I'm guessing, as well. Yeah, it does. It actually can and does. So what it suggests is that a way to intervene when you say what can parents and schools and and adults do, it's really important to take it away from just the the child. And and again, schools, um, often it happens within school peers. So even if it's not happening at school, because it's happening on, you know, whatever devices, schools are increasingly recognizing that they still need to deal with it. So an important way to deal with it is as a as a peer group 
kind of situation, not just kids. Because, and, and it's important to provide the atmosphere for that because one of the issues when people say, oh, stand up and do something, it's very hard to do that. Like to be able to be the person to say, stop doing that, you have to really be secure in your popularity or your self-esteem or something. You know, you have to not feel very vulnerable because one of the reasons kids don't jump in um, is that they're afraid they're going to be next. And and that it's really important because um, some research has shown that if a child's being bullied online, they, they don't know how many people are watching it, and they think everybody agrees. So it's really important mm. that people uh, intervene. And, um, and so schools and, and parents need to deal with it in that kind of way. And often, again, going back to the power, it's often because kids are different in some way. So whether it's race, religion, ethnicity, how they do in school, um, physically, how they look. Um, and then another, there's also a lot of gender issues. So uh, kids who are LGBTQ, they're more vulnerable to be bullied online and offline. Girls are um, vulnerable to being uh, bullied sexually and to have a uh, rid of sex. So mm. to uh, that's a whole, that's sort of a, a newer kind of um, phenomenon where Generally, and generally, because of the digital world, more and more uh, individuals of all ages, and now more so in COVID, um, are using sexting, so sending images uh, as a way of relating to people, whether it's in intimate relationships, whether it's in dating. And, of course, when we hear about it, often we hear about it in terms of the negativity and the... Um, the detrimental outcomes, which definitely is happens, but at the same time, we it's important to remember that for many, again, it depends on the age. It's natural and it can be even healthy. So for teenagers, for example, it might be a healthier way for them to experiment than to actually be in the back seat of a car. And then with COVID, things have changed because distance is um, is problematic. But um, consensually sending a sex or an image to somebody is one thing. And again, depending on the age, uh, it might, it's, it's like many other developmental um, many activities that need to be understood developmentally. You know, for a 13-year-old girl, they might be, might be problematic because of the age they're vulnerable. For a 17-year-old girl, depending on the girl, it might not be problematic. Same for a boy. Um, but one of the issues that happens, there's a couple of issues. One is that sometimes girls are pressured to do so. So even though it's quote consensual, it's not really. And then the other thing is um, they might send a picture consensually and then it gets sent out to everybody mm-hmm. non-consensually. So girls are much more at risk of having that happen. And the other thing that happens is they're sent unsolicited pictures by males. Males are more likely to do that. And, and uh, LGBTQ um, trans kids are more likely to have that happen to them too. So, um, so that, that's one of the reasons it's so complicated because it kind of mirrors, not kind of, it mirrors what happens in our society where dominant norms um, need to be understood because often uh, the, the cyberbullying or the harm is done uh, because of the, that kind of structural dominant uh, stereotypes and that needs to be addressed. Wow. 
you paint a very, as you say, complicated picture about this new world because of uh, our social media platforms that allow us to have this kind of uh, interconnectivity that we have uh, on the planet. It, it, it makes me wonder uh, of another question. It goes back to the relationship side of things that you were talking about earlier. Do do we find that bullying happens with young people online still within groups that they know? I'm just wondering if, if yes. so they yes. are continued, it's the same kind of bullying, it's the same kind of thing that would happen at the school schoolyard. So it's not, you know, anonymous. No, and, and it's not, it's, typically it's not anonymous. It can be. Again, if somebody's really savvy, they can do that. But, mm. but generally it's not. And, and what you find, we found this, others have found it too, that even when we're speaking to kids and they might say, oh, one of the ways it's different is that it's anonymous. But then if they talk about something that happened to them or something they saw, it becomes pretty clear that they did know who it was. Okay. Um, so it, it's typically not anonymous. And that's why it's important to, to look at it again like a relationship problem. And often people are watching it. And kids, um, I mean, in a recent study, what we found that um, a number of kids who had seen it happen felt very bad because they didn't feel comfortable publicly saying anything. So privately, they might have confronted the person who bullied or they tried to support the kid who was victimized. Um, So they clearly knew who it was. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and then type in E-L-M-N-T-F-M along with those coordinates and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day. My guest is uh, Dr. Faye Mishna. And she is a professor of social work at the University of Toronto. We're talking to her about cyberbullying. Uh, she recently, uh, well, she's written some articles on this, and she's got extensive uh, work in the area of of bullying. And uh, so, uh, Dr. Fay, when when we think about uh, cyberbullying, you know, in in today's world, uh, yeah. what are we? What are we? How do we combat it? Well, um, one of the things that I think needs Often we don't think about combating it until it's happened. So I think it's important to go back to an initial helping kids when they're really young, how to act online, how to respond online, and to help develop an atmosphere where uh, it's not acceptable, Not, but it's not that it's zero tolerance in the sense of punitive, but that um, it's not acceptable and that in a... Uh, in, an edu- in an educative way, help uh, kids in groups and friendship peers to um, to learn about differences, to, to learn how to be tolerant, to learn how to deal with conflicts, and, and really to help them learn how to they, they call it netiquette, you know, internet netiquette, mm. how to have that. And But it really needs, the other thing is it really needs to be discussion about more than just cyberbullying, because often we think about, okay, well, how can we deal with the problem? But before we have the problem, it's important to think about how do we interact online? You know, what do we do? What are the positives? What are the benefits? What are the negatives? So to do it in that kind of concept. Also, to have to, um, the other thing that's very important is one of the most concerning uh, findings is that kids tend not to tell their parents or teachers about bullying, cyberbullying, or sexting. So they it's up to adults to start those conversations, but they can't just, you know, when they're 12 or 13, say, okay, tell me about it. They need to start talking about it um, before it's a problem. 
and it may not, not even become a problem. Just, just, and also, um, there's this idea often that kids, because they've only grown up with this, that they know more than we do, hmm. um, and they're better at it. Well, they are technically, that's true, <laughs> but um, when they're young, they don't have the executive functions, the critical right. thinking. They still need our help. So it's really good to then, um, it's important for adults to say, okay, help me, learn how to do Teach me this. Teach me what you do. And then also help them. Adults can help them with their judgment. Mm. So it's done in a, in a way that it just becomes part of a conversation. And then the other important thing is one of the reasons kids often don't tell, whether it's sexting, cyberbullying, or bullying, is that they feel there's, – there's many reasons. But one of the reasons is that they think it will get worse. Um, and for cyberbullying one of the main, and sexting, one of the main reasons is they feel that – their parents, even if they're not mad but want to protect them, will take away their devices or limit mm. them. Mm. And that's worse. that feels worse than going through it because, as we know, devices are no longer devices. They're part of the social world. Yeah. Um, and then with um, issues like sexting, girls don't tell because one of the messages, the way that that's been dealt with is often the messages to girls is don't do it. So then they feel like their parents and their teachers will be disgusted and upset and, again, take away their devices. So, again, that's why it's important. It's not a matter of just don't do it. It's helping under, so helping them understand. But adults need to be able to respond without freaking out. They need to, um, they need to try to listen and understand because one of the things that happens, so, for example, sexting, one of the things that happens is that we don't hear about it unless there's a crisis and it's, a, and it's in the news and it's typically a tragedy. And then it goes back underground and we don't hear about it. But when it's underground and adults aren't talking about it, kids are. Kids mm-hmm. know about it. Mm-hmm. So adults need to be need to recognize it's not necessarily always bad. Um, just like you know, whether it's drinking, smoking, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's like becomes one of those um, kinds of activities that people need to understand both in terms of developmentally mm. and different kids are different vulnerabilities. So adults need to kind of get on board with that. Interesting. You know, you, you mentioned a couple of things earlier. You said, especially online, uh, you mentioned the word, uh, if they're savvy about, you know, they can do this. Yeah, if someone is ha- even has more experience on, on devices and has more experience in writing or has, you know, whatever, those talents can come in to, to help in, in bullying someone else uh, just exactly. from the get-go. Exactly. Exactly. And that might be how they have more power online. Mm. Exactly. Just like you know, face-to-face, they might be stronger. Right. Yeah. Now, the other thing you just mentioned about girls, though, and, you know, not girls not saying anything because they, you know, the message is just don't do it. But are, is that message changing? Are we getting the message across to kids, do you think, about that they need to talk about this or they need to share about it if it's if it's not healthy for them? Um, well, we're telling kids they need to share it, but I don't think we've gotten the message to adults that they need to hear it. Ah. Because kids are not going to say it. Like, so, for example, we did a, uh, right until COVID, we were working with focus groups, uh, kids in focus groups, asking them about sexting. And I, almost none of them had spoken to their parents or teachers. Mm. And what was striking is it's not because they didn't have good relationships with their parents. They had good relationships with the parents, but they felt that the parents wouldn't understand, wouldn't know what to do, mm. or would take away their devices. Right. So we ha- they have to... Uh, so they need to know that they will be heard and it, 
and understood and that they'll help them deal with it. Um, but that the answer isn't just don't do it. I'm going to take away your device. Mm. So, so adults, we can't just say to adults, you know, you have to change your thinking. There needs to be education about it and understanding. Um, cause I think a lot of people don't realize how, um, and it's, in fact, in Europe, there's tend to be an understanding. There's two ways of looking at sexing. For example, one is called the deviance model, which is really like the zero tolerance. So it's like, it's not good. Don't do it. And then the normal, um, discourse model says, again, like any kind of developmental, activity for kids it doesn't have to be problematic it can be problematic but depends on the age the vulnerability the consent so all those kinds of issues need to be part of the conversation Mm. is bullying a a temporary thing for youth well that's a really good question i think for some it is um but there's also been research to show that um Kids who are victimized, depending on the effects, the effects might not be temporary. Mm. And kids who bully, depending on what the circumstances are for that, there's some studies have shown a relationship between kids who bully and kids who then engage in dating violence or other kinds of violence. So it doesn't have to be temporary. So it's important. Um, and even if it is temporary, it can still have long-term effects. So it's important not to just think kids will grow out of it because they might grow out of it and they're perpetrator into yeah. something else. And for a kid who's victimized, even if it stops, if that hasn't been dealt with, they still might feel the lowest self-esteem, the depression, or, or whatever. Right. Yeah, that makes, of course, perfect sense. I'm just wondering about the leap into other areas that you were talking about. And what I mean by that is uh, we're talking about youth and bullying, but there's a lot of bullying that goes on from adults online with other people. Absolutely. Are are the adults, you know, are we setting a bad example, of course, for kids? Absolutely. And and we're not just setting a bad example, um, but we're also – when kids can see who is bullying who. So, for example, if we live in a world where, you know, people who are a certain color or a certain gender mm. um, have more power to treat others differently, there's a strong message um, there. When there is a bit of research shown, I haven't followed it lately, but in the States that after Donald Trump was elected and the whole issue with immigration came up, that there was more bullying... Um, that had the, where the content was go back to where you come from. Mm-hmm. So, so that you know, so it's not just that individual adults people give a you know role models in a bad way um, and give that uh, you know are, are kind of showing how to act in that problematic way. But if that's what's acceptable in society, that message is. Kids might not even realize they're getting that message, and adults may not realize they're giving it, but that's the message, and that's why that needs to be um, understood and unpacked. Well, we do, we do, of course, see all of those things at play uh, online and, and with, with uh, about the messaging uh, and about are we getting the message, are they receiving it clearly, are we doing it deliberately, uh, all of those kind of things. I guess, though, that where do we go with this information? What do we try to do with it? Uh, you kind of alluded to, you know, maybe is it awareness that's the key? Well, I think that's a great question. I think awareness is one part, but I don't think it's sufficient. In fact, this last day that we were just uh, doing 
one of the things that struck us, and we haven't written it up yet, is that a lot of the kids, we um, what we showed in the focus group, we first off uh, showed them images of males and females for advertising, where the females were for the same uh, uh, company, the, the females would be wearing almost nothing. And then the men, mm. the males would be, you know, have uh, standing in front of a fancy car, just looking very wealthy. So what was very interesting is when kids talked about those images and when they talked about sexting in general, they really had a really good understanding of, uh, they, they could talk, they could critically look at the mm. societal norms, like how women are treated and how males are treated, uh, men are treated. And they saw the problems with that. Then when we went to asking them how they dealt with these situations, that didn't transfer over. Mm. So that's where they need help and support. So that, for example, um, some girls said if they got an unsolicited dick pic from boys and if it was somebody who they didn't necessarily know, but there was a mutual that they had in common, they tended to have problems. They didn't want to hurt their feelings. Mm. Right? So um, even though when they talked generally, they understood the problem. So that's where there needs to be help to um, kind of take on some of those kinds of issues. Because, again, people don't realize that, that you know, girls are struggling with that. Mm. What about uh, kids that come to other kids' assistance? Do we see that a lot? Um, we we don't see that as much as we probably would like, but research, some interventions, working with kids have helped them do that, and when that happens, it helps a lot. Mm. Um, I also think sometimes that we don't, kids might not come to others' assistance in front of everybody, whether it's in person or online, because they feel vulnerable, but they will do it privately. Right. So they do. And the other thing, that's, I think that's a really important question too, because even if kids don't come to somebody else's assistance, they might feel really bad. They might feel mm. kind of traumatized watching it, and they also might feel guilty for not having gone, to, gone and helped them, even though it's understandable that they didn't. Right. Dr. Faye Mishnah, has been fascinating talking to you about this topic, uh, one that we hear a lot about uh, all around us, and uh, certainly anyone with children is probably aware of it, very much so. And I really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the show and talk to us about cyberbullying. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's Dr. Faye Mishnah. She's a professor uh, of social work at the University of Toronto. Prior to joining the Faculty of Social Work, she was a clinical director of Children's Mental Health and at Center, serving children with learning disabilities. It's been a pleasure speaking with her. That is this part of the program, but please don't go away because we're going to be right back with more right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. And welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show Benjamin Mayangwa, and he is a PhD in Peace and Conflict Studies from the Arthur 
V. Myro Center for Peace and Justice at the University of Manitoba. He now teaches uh, Indigenous peace building and ethics at the University of Manitoba. And we're here to talk to him about an article he wrote in the conversation about a similar idea. It's based on the colonial enterprise, hard-baked violence in Nigeria and how it can be fixed. So, Benjamin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, David. Really an honor uh, to be here with you today. It's quite an interesting article. I have to say that you wrote on this. You take a different approach in your looking at the at Nigeria and how the country was established uh, and how it was formed, not really as a nation, but more as a, a business enterprise. Right, uh, David. Uh, first of all, I want to acknowledge uh, the other authors of uh, the article, uh, Professor Chibo Anyaduba of the University of Winnipeg mm. and Ahmed Dan Suleiman uh, from the University of Western uh, Australia. So in 2018, uh, my supervisor got us together to do a special issue on the impact of colonialism in the field of peace and conflict studies and how decolonization processes uh, through the lens of peace and conflict studies could kind of shed a light uh, by way of finding uh, some sort of a way forward in the post-colonial moment. Uh, so we have looked at the research already done in Nigeria and other African countries, and people were generally talking about indirect governance uh, through uh, the local chiefs. Mm. And uh, we felt that especially in the case of Nigeria, but also in other uh, post-colonial societies, that indirect governance actually started way uh, before the amalgamation of the Southern and Northern Protectorate of Nigeria through the use of companies. Mm. That companies were actually the foundations of the so-called nation state as we have them today. And, and so instead of birthing nation states and community of people, after independence in 1960, what the colonies merely passed on uh, to the to the to the so-called nationalist uh, leaders, if I would uh, say that, uh, was basically an industrial enterprise. And so, what we have since 1960, uh, basically, what we looked at in that research, um, were a series of secessionist groups. Uh, uh, vying for the control of the state. And the, most of, most of these groups were led by the regional leaders that took over from the colonialists. And then we felt that there must be something at stake, you know, for people to be vying for the state. Mm. Because eventually when they get onto power, they end up being the same way and perpetuating the same attitude that we saw during the British reign. And that is police brutality. That is uh, blatant corruption. And that is also institutional uh, decay and lack of continuation of projects as we have been having with so many successive regimes in the country. Mm. When you go back, though, you mentioned a couple of companies uh, back in the 1886 area, for, era, for instance, the uh, Royal Niger Company uh, right. and the United Africa Company. Right. Can you expand on that a little bit more? I mean, like um, the, the the United African uh, Company, I think, was the, was the major company that was granted... Uh, Charter rights at the time by the crown, mm. and uh, and over time, uh, it's 
its influence extended beyond where it was granted right. It was granted the right in southern, in southern Nigeria. And when the British came, let us realize that there were already local chiefs spearheading over the affairs of their people. And the colony of Lagos, the colony of Lagos was very, very key to them, but also the colony of, uh, of Benin, the great Benin empire. And also in, in South, South Nigeria, like in present day Cross River and uh, Port Harcourt. So Lagos was taken over by these companies through the use of uh, indigenous police, which was kind of uh, very interesting. The police that the companies use were, especially in the case of Lagos, uh, were from northern Nigeria. So they used police that did not have any sort of sensibilities to the ro- local realities to kind of protect the activities of those companies. And those companies merely dealt with, you know, cash and food produce. And so when the Royal Niger Company came, that was when uh, the idea of uh, merging the southern and the northern protectorate were kind of being entertained around that time. So the Royal Niger Company, I think, took over from the United African company mm. and became that really huge conglomerate uh, in the area and spearheading both the affairs of southern Nigeria but also northern Nigeria. So when Lord Lugard came eventually, that gave him some sort of uh, a bedrock on which to found the, the company state that we now call Nigeria. I wrote down relationship and responsibilities. And uh, that, those kind of things seem to be not of interest, correct, to mm. the businesses and to the, that, that are there just for, for profit. Right. I mean, if we look at the nature of uh, capitalism today, we can have an idea of what that means for us, um, especially in the, in the global south, our so-called developing uh, societies. When we look at the interests of these companies, for example, uh, in India, in Bangladesh, in Honduras, and, and, and the brazen abuse of human rights, especially the use of children in, in many of these uh, corporations to produce, you know, what they are selling at exorbitant uh, uh, prices in the global north, then we begin to get an idea of what actually happened uh, in the 18th and also 19th century where the human rights framework is not as uh, founded as we have them today. Uh, and so it wasn't uh, in the interest, and definitely it wouldn't be in their interest to think about relationships. Relationships were only if they were, they were, they were going to advance the economic interests of the colonies. Uh, and so building communities, building nations, was never the interest of, of the crown. And, and so they, 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 they perpetuated this system that is now regarded as the divide and rule. You know, let us divide and then rule people. Because like some people will say, it is in confusion that money has been made. So the divide and rule was basically that let us use uh, uh, groups that um, do not originally maybe belong to this area. So remember I told you of the Hausa men that were used as police mm. for in the Lagos colony, where they did not belong. And then in northern Nigeria, there was the use of uh, of a certain favored groups that were at that time already considered as foreigners in that area. 
because they led a jihad and established a caliphate uh, in, in the northern region. And, and so the, the British decided they were going to use them because they were the more enlightened, they were the more educated, but also the more established groups. So those kind of relationships that they built with the locals were really economic uh, relationships in the long run. And it really sounds like that relationship, based on those very simple rules of, of economics for, for profit, damaged the, the local people greatly. Right. De- definitely. And, and it also damaged the aspirations uh, of the nationalist uh, leaders. Uh, who, before independence, seemed very united. They seemed very united in in, in, in terms of what they wanted to achieve uh, for the new nation. But as soon as the country was politically, and I would say politically handed to them, because in, in a way, really, uh, none of those uh, countries that, that, that were colonized are, are actually free. You know, so as soon as those you know, countries were politically granted uh, to the post-independence le- leaders in many parts of Africa, but especially in Nigeria, they turned back to ethnic and regional politics because that was what was also instituted uh, by, the, by the colonists. The colonists, they ruled somehow the, the, the state as, as a company, but they also kind of tried to, to rule every region of the state in isolation. So the northern part of Nigeria was governed in isolation from the south, such that when the southerners came, they were put in a quarters regarded as a stranger's quarters mm-hmm. because the, the colonies were kind of afraid that the southerners were going to negatively influence the northerners into fighting anti-colonial wars because the, fi- the southerners actually put up a really great uh, um, um, fight against the British mm-hmm. uh, in, around the 1860s in Lagos, in, in Cross River, in Port Harcourt, and also in, in the southeast, like in Abba. And even after the, the independence in the 1920s, uh, we, we had a lot of protests against the, the state. I, I guess, sorry, it wasn't even after independence. It was even way before then. Uh, we, we, we had uh, protests in the 1920s against the colonialists by women, by market women in Abba. So the southerners were much more organized in that sense. They were much more progressive. And the Northerners are regarded as backward. And the colonialists did it for a purpose. They did it for a purpose because they didn't want, uh, they didn't want the kind of, uh, uh, opposition that they faced in the South. So they, they governed the country seemingly as one, but also really in a very divisive, uh, manner. And so they handed over that kind of logic, uh, to the nationalist, uh, leaders, which created this nervousness of belonging uh, in the post-independence uh, era. You know, I can't help but, but think about why, why the British would, and the Crown at the time, would, would allow it to be set up this way and not want to have it set up as a, as a, as a country under their control rather than just allow businesses to, to do this, especially, as you point out in the article, there, there was so much natural resource wealth there. So uh, it would make sense uh, because they would do that elsewhere when they would, went, would go and colonize, would they not? Yeah, well, they, I don't think they did it elsewhere. Uh, mm-hmm. It wasn't the intention of any 
uh, colonies to, to have a community of people united with legitimate rights mm. and all that That's stuff. Uh, let, let us look at South Africa. Let us look at India and even Canada here where we live. And, uh, uh, we, we can, we can see examples of, of companies, you know, having charter rights to govern people. Uh, and so at that time, they didn't conceive the idea that these countries were ever going to be independent. Mm. Uh, they felt that they were going to have control over the resources of these countries. And that was the way it was going to be. Mm. And so the, the manner in which even the French, uh, 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 system of colonialism was, was even much more worse than the British because what the French did and they are still doing. Uh, in, in, in some part of Africa, uh, especially in the islands. So what they did was to create provinces. So the, 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 the so-called states in Africa were basically the extension of France. So they, they regarded Algeria as a province of France. Mm. Cameroon was the province of France. Mm. Gabon was the province of France. So the main country, of course, was France. Mm. And then those places were governed as the provinces, but not as countries in and of themselves. Right. So that was the logic because you give them that right. Then what happens? Of course, uh, they become more powerful, uh, than their masters. So they needed to be enslaved in that way. Yes, you mentioned enslaved. Uh, we're going to talk about that as part of the uh, one of the byproducts of how this, uh, how they went about setting up Nigeria and 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 what that what that did, um, and and how that how they viewed people. Um, hmm. But I just want to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in 106.5 FM. And, uh, E-L-M-N-T, F-M, along with, uh, either of those. And then uh, listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's a pleasure to have with us here on the show, Benjamin Mayangwa. And, uh, we were talking about an article that, uh, he, uh, wrote in the, uh, the conversation. And it's called The Colonial Exper- Expertise, Hard-Baked Violence in Nigeria and How It Can Be Fixed. And it looks at the history of Nigeria and talks about the, exactly what we're talking about, how the country was basically set up as a business enterprise and administered that way. Benjamin, I'm just wondering about the, how they viewed people and how they viewed the people of Nigeria at the time of doing this were simply as uh, a part of the business. They, they didn't see them as people necessarily. Right. And, and, you know, there were even more horrendous uh, terminologies that they created to refer to those people. So, uh, that was when, you know, you would hear names like pagans. Mm. These are unbelievers. These are savages. Mm. Uh, and even in, in, in Canada, you will hear names like the Indians, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, the same thing also happened in Nigeria. Many of those groups were regarded as pagans. They were regarded as, as, uh, savages, as, uh, barbaric, uh, illiterate. And backward mm. uh, people, so they, they made that division, but mm. you know, not entirely so. So the division was that you know, certain groups will be regarded as pagans, so that they could give other groups that seeming feeling that they've got power over those others. So because remember, I said it was indirect governance using the local chiefs of a favored group right. to oppress their own kind. Yes, right. So creating that division in which certain groups are regarded as pagans and others are regarded as 
natives and even the natives themselves. That concept of native is also a hugely uh, problematic uh, terminology. I think really played into their economic uh, advancement, the colonialist economic advancement at the time. So people were not viewed as people, uh, people with rights in and of themselves as legitimate entities. They were viewed as machines and they were viewed more or less really as, uh, as, as, as the vehicles that will move the wheels of the colonial engine. Yeah. Do, do you know much about how Nigeria was structured uh, prior to the colonial I- interference? Uh, what I was mean, there are, there, there are a lot of uh, research uh, done to that effect. And uh, we, we do not have a very clear sense of that. But, uh, there, you know, we have ideas about that. Uh, Nigeria was structured more or less, I mean, like every other most African countries, um, well, not countries at the time, mm. in, 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 a, in a form of an empire. So there were pockets of empires. Mm. Uh, we had the Benin Empire. Uh, we had the Kanembornu Empire in the north. Uh, we, we, and even in, in Mali and in Ghana, we had those, those, we have, we had the Mali uh, empire as well. So we had those empires really led by, led by also really dominant groups in those areas. So Nigeria was not necessarily, uh, or at least the place regarded as Nigeria today was not necessarily free of colonial influences before the British. So let us also remember that those empires also impose certain colonial uh, tendencies that gave, that actually paved the way for the entrenchment of European colonialism. So let's take the case of uh, Northern Nigeria. From 1804, there began a jihad, a jihad by a Fulani man uh, from that area, Uthman Danfodio. Uh, and the jihad was basically to impose a form of religion, and that, that is Islam, to impose Islam on the Hausa states of that area. So he felt that the Hausas were not really living in accordance to the Islamic dictate. And remember that the Arabs were already trading with the Hausas in that part of the world from the 15th century onward. So when Usman Danfodio uh, began that jihad in the, in the late 19th century, uh, it was some sort of a colonial expedition because that led also to the entrenchment of a particular group as the dominant force in, in northern Nigeria, and that is a Fulani group. And if you look at the history of Nigeria post-independence, then you will see that most of Nigerian leaders have been Fulanis. Or even if not Fulanis, they have come from northern Nigeria, because northern Nigeria has more or less about 19, 19 states, and the jihad was kind of also almost extended to the southwest, but I think he was defeated along the way. And so let us imagine even in southern Africa with Shaka Zulu of, of, of South Africa, he also led the same war of expansion. So there, there was also these wars of conquest that were being uh, um, I, I think they, 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 they were playing out before the European settlers came into those colonies. 
So let, let us not uh, exempt the pre-European uh, Africa as a place that was devoid of colonialism. Mm. It was also a place that that was kind of hamstrung by these contestations by you know various dominant groups mm. over the usurpation of of certain communities. So those communities kind of had their own autonomies and were governed more or less in a form of an empire manner. And so when the British came, they 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 looked at those empires that were very dominant and those empires that were rich. Mm. And and one of those colonies or at least empires then uh, was Lagos. So there was Lagos and there was also the Cross River uh, region, you know. Mm. And and so they went to that area first. And in 1891, uh, they assembled a small group of men to subdue the chiefs, mm. you know, both in Lagos, but also in the upper Cross River region because they were seen as the obstacles, right, to mm. the expansion of the British Empire mm. in those places. Right. So that was how they started because those people were already formed into empires. And in a way, really, they were very so self-sustaining. They were very self-sustaining communities. And uh, the people of the Benin Empire, uh, I think one of their agitations now is for the British to return a lot of the artifact that they stole. You know, uh, because when they conquered them, they also took a lot of their artifacts and took them to the British uh, Museum, uh, which has become really uh, the delight of the world now. Mm. You know, the other thing you talk about in the article, and that is uh, to, to move forward from this and, and the alternatives that could be brought forward to, uh, uh, you know, maybe move the nation forward. Uh, but before we get there, again, I can't help but think about the mindset that this has left the country with, mm. uh, you know, overall, uh, when being exposed to that long of a, of a certain kind of, of understanding, uh, what do you think that has done to the, to the mindset of the people? I think, and that is why I, we stated in the article that uh, going forward, we need a critical reappraisal, but also self-criticism. Mm. Uh, self-criticism in the sense that uh, the mindset of even the young people uh, that, you know, are protesting recently for good governance and against police brutality in Nigeria, mm. the mindset has always been that Nigeria is an opportunity, uh, you know, waiting for anyone who has the ability and the means to capture the state. And once you capture the state, it should be business as usual mm. for you, for your cronies and for your own community. Because if you didn't do that as a leader, you, you might be regarded as a failure. Mm. You might be regarded as that person who went there and uh, made a fool of himself and didn't do anything for his village. So that has been the mindset since independence that the state is out there to be captured because it has the oil resources. So you see young people going through universities and wanting to graduate and find jobs in the oil company mm. because that is where the money right. is. Right. Right. So, so that kind of mindset, as we have seen in the protest now, is gradually changing. And I need to give some sort of credence to the young people. I think young people, uh, uh, due to globalization, social media, they are beginning to see what is also happening out there. And the fact that when they come together and when they stand up against police brutality, 
against corruption, years and years of corruption, against bad governance and degradation of their environment, like we see in the Niger Delta region, that they can or at least might be able to make some progressive uh, uh, changes. So for me, really, the protests going on in Nigeria against police brutality, of course, it's just it's, it's a symbol. Police brutality is a symbol of everything wrong with the country. It's, it's giving many Nigerians hope that it is no longer business as usual, mm. that people are realizing that we can at least, you know, join hands together, regardless of our ethnic and regional divide, to move the country uh, forward. So we, we are really left, uh, or at least I, I wait to see the outcome of, you know, what this uh, kind of protest, which unfortunately also uh, has been repressed by by another form of uh, police, but mm. also army brutality in, mm. the, in the country. But, you know, it's, it's kind of uh, auspicious of better things to come. Just quickly, the, the uh, hashtag NSARS pro, uh, protests that you uh, refer to in the article, you say that's mm. a step in the right direction for social change. It is. It is a step. I mean, we have been waiting for something like this. Um, uh, pre-independence Nigeria was much more vocal about the ills of the society than the post-independence era, which unfortunately is is kind of ironic because in the post-independence, we are the ones ruling ourselves and we cannot be able to call ourselves to order. But during the British, we had people really rising and fighting them. And and so when the NSAS protest started, uh, it gave so many people hope. And the slogan started in 2017 as a Twitter campaign you know, using NSAS to demand the disbanding of the units of the Nigerian government. And that unit was set up, the unit of the Nigerian police. And that unit was set up in 1992. Uh, it is known as the Special Anti-Robbery Squad. It's, it is the anti-robbery uh, unit of the Nigerian police. And it is set up in 1992 to fight armed robbery and was given this wide-ranging you know, powers by the Nigerian police, but the federal government. And uh, they are not identifiable because they do not wear uniforms. And uh, there are allegations that they are perpetuating the very same crimes that they were set up to combat because they arrest people arbitrarily on the street. People going about with, uh, with iPhones, for example, people wearing uh, flashy clothes, for example. So mm. whatever they see in you, they consider it as stolen. Mm. And so they steal that also from you. And in some cases, they kill you. And so the crisis, or rather the protest that we see happening, began on October 4th, when a SARS officer shot a young motorist in Delta State of Nigeria. And then he pushed his body out of the Lexus car that that man was driving. And he went off with the SUV Lexus. And that was what led to the NSAS protests as we have it today on the 4th of October. And then the Black Tuesday of the 20th of October when when unarmed protesters were shot at by the Nigerian military. And and, and so kind of the the momentum has gone down in a way, but but it is also a very great sign for young people uh, to realize that they could actually stand up. They could stand up against bad governance. They could stand up against bad leadership mm. in the country. And, and any leader being elected going forward and the next, you know, general elections in Nigeria 
will be in 2023, we'll have an idea that the young people are no longer docile. They are no longer dormant. Mm. Uh, and they, are, they, are, they are no longer psychophants. Well, a lot of us are a lot of because Nigeria is also greatly, you know, divided on ethnic and religious lines. And for most people, they don't really mind who is a leader as far as you are from their ethnic, you know, or religious group. And that is really unfortunate. So if we can go uh, really beyond ethnic and religious sentiment or even regional sentiment in Nigeria, I think we might begin to start seeing some sort of progress uh, in the country. Mm. Benjamin, it's been fascinating speaking with you, and I really want to say thank you for taking the time to join us on the show and share this with us. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for for this opportunity and uh, for the interest uh, in my article. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Benjamin Mayangwa, he is a PhD in Peace and Conflict Studies. He now teaches Indigenous Peacebuilding and Ethics at the University of Manitoba, and his research centers on contested notions of home, belonging, and ethnographics of uh, peace. He also researches broadly on African culture, politics, and security. It's been a pleasure to have him on the show, and it's always a pleasure to have you listening to our show each and every day. I'm your host, David Moses, and we'll see you here again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM.